0: I invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, and we will read all 10 verses of that chapter. 1 John chapter 1, and before we read God's word and hear it explained, let us again bow to pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. I would call you to pay careful attention to this reading. It is the very word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it Your pastor assures me that you are some very smart people. I think the term he used was honors class. And since I believe everything that your pastor says, I didn't back down from the sermon title this morning. Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. I'll unpack that in a moment for you, but let me assure you that that's a new term for a very old heresy. Back in 2005, Gene Edward Veith wrote an article for World Magazine in which he described a book written by Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. Now, all of those names are not required memory, The title of the book, however, is Significant, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Smith and Denton interviewed over 3,000 American teenagers about their religious beliefs, and they summarized their findings under five points. First, A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Second, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Third, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, the two authors coined the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. And by that they meant that God is happy with a religion that's moral, In other words, be good. That's therapeutic. Your psychological well-being is what matters most. And third, it's deistic. There is a God out there somewhere, not particularly involved in what's going on in this world. Many of these young deists they found are active in their church. The authors went on to say, "Most religious teenagers either do not really comprehend their religious tradition they are supposed to believe, or they do understand it and simply don't care to believe it End quote." That's why we study the Bible. A hundred years ago, in American church scene, there was a war going on for the soul of the church. There were those who called themselves modernists and the fundamentalists. The modernists, this is going to sound so 2022, wanted to make the church relevant for today. And so they denied some key biblical doctrines, and as a term of derision, they called the others fundamentalists. It is out of that conflict, by the way, that our denomination was born. Thanks be to God. That's why we study the Bible. There's really not much new under the sun. That's why when we gather for worship, it is crucial that we open the book. And the centerpiece of every worship service is a reading of the book and an explanation of that passage. The antidote to modernism, to modern, to moral, therapeutic deism, or whatever you want, whatever label you want to use, is to read the book to be people of the book, to find out who we really are in the sight of God and find out who God is. God who does reveal himself in creation and history and most clearly in the Bible. A God who is so involved that he left the glory of heaven to take on human flesh to suffer the punishment that had your name on it and mine. We do need a Savior, not to make us nice people, but to make us acceptable to God. We look this morning, especially at verses 8 through 10. Listen again to that text. If we confess our sins, he is... No, verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We're going to look this morning, take a hard look at ourselves first of all, and then a hopeful look at God. A hard look at ourselves begins when a person says, I'm not a sinner, and thus denies his sinful nature, verse 8, and then says, I have not sinned, which denies his sinful actions, verse 10. The denial of the sinful nature sounds like this, verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I have no sin. Does that sound delusional? Do you know anyone? Perfect? Yet isn't that what people mean when they say, I'm a pretty good person. God will let me into heaven. They're saying, my sin is no big deal. And I don't have that much. Not really. I mean, look at him. Look at her. I I make mistakes, granted. I have some shortcomings. There are some quirks that irritate some people. I remind my wife that it's my quirks that endear me to her. But whatever you want to call it, what God calls it is sin. If we say that, if we say it's my mistakes, my quirks, we deny, we deceive ourselves. We deny the very part of our nature that is sinful. We're probably not deceiving anyone else. Certainly not God who sees the heart. And then further, the truth is not in us. It's in that spiritual blindness that such a person doesn't see himself clearly, and it goes against the plain teaching of Scripture. What happens to a person who does have the truth in himself is he sees himself more clearly, even the painful parts that I am a sinner that my true spiritual condition is miserable, that I'm doomed. I'm doomed unless God comes to rescue me, unless the light shines in this dark place. And when we come close to the light, when the light comes to us, we will see ourselves for who we really are. Light does that, you see. When I was 8 or 10 years old, my dad bought a used car. He bought it one evening in the rain. Now, some of you already know where this story is going. The next day, the sun came out and the car dried off, and he saw a lot of scratches and scuffs. Now, he liked his cars clean and shiny and looking good, And he wasn't happy. And he taught me two important things. One, never buy a car in the rain. And always look at it in the daylight. When we come close to light, to him who is light, we see ourselves for who we really are. C.H. Spurgeon, the great British preacher, the preacher, he is called was once confronted by a man who claimed he had no sin. And Spurgeon was intrigued by him. And so he invited him to dinner one evening. And after hearing that claim again, Spurgeon picked up a glass of water and threw it in the man's face. And the guest was very upset and expressed himself quite forcefully to the preacher. To which Spurgeon replied, Ah, you see, the old man within you is not dead. He simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. (laughs) If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That verse speaks of our hearts, of our nature, apart from the saving work of Christ. But then verse 10 goes on to describe the actions that arise from such a heart. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, that happens all the time. We no longer call sin, sin. Adultery is having an affair. Theft is helping myself to the perks. Selfishness is standing up for my rights. Sexual perversion can be excused as, well, God made me that way and he wants me to be happy. Or we boldly, blindly, in defiance of what God says, say, I have not sinned. And thus we make ourselves equal to God, the sinless one. And we call him a liar. A person who goes that far, in spite of all the evidence of the Bible, in spite of all the evidence you see in the mirror, rejects the gospel salvation. And such a person has no part in Christ. That's us. That's the hard look. But you know, God never leaves us there. Never leaves us in darkness without bringing light to those who will receive it. Verse 9, then, we have a hopeful look at God. We saw our nature and actions, and now we look at His. First, verse 9 begins, If we confess our sins... We openly and honestly face our sins without hiding or excusing them. We admit without defending ourselves or justifying ourselves. This is specific confession. Not putting your head on the pillow at the end of the day and saying, uh, God, forgive me, I was bad today. But rather, Father, forgive me for my harsh words to, for my bitter thoughts about, for my lustful look at. Lord, that was sin. I hate it. And I recognize what it is and I confess I'm guilty. Please, please forgive me through. The blood of Christ. It's specific. And the other thing that doesn't come through in our English translations, but it's ongoing. What John wrote here is if we keep on confessing our sins, then the beauty of God's divine nature is seen. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Let's stop there for a moment. God is faithful to his nature. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. Trust, for, trust him in his promises and you will not be disappointed. Promises like Jeremiah 31-34, repeated, by the way, in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that the balm for your humble heart that you crave? Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Or John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the nature of God. He delights in showing mercy. He loves to show grace to sinners that we might praise him. His nature and his divine actions, forgiving us of our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Justice, his justice requires now that our sins be forgiven. It was once his justice that required punishment. And that's what Christ did at the cross. That debt is now paid. Now that same holy, perfect justice requires him to forgive. His wrath was satisfied at Calvary. Here's a a little detour. If I go too long, pull me back. But... Maybe my favorite word in the Bible, you're going to like this, propitiation. One, one um, test of a good Bible translation, if you're looking at Bibles in a bookstore and not sure which one to get, turn to 1 John 4 verse 10 and see if the word propitiation is there. In my judgment, that's a good translation if it says that. Propitiation is Christ satisfying God's righteous wrath on the cross. The ESV has it, by the way. And forgiving. God cancels the debt and restores the debtor, and then cleanses us, makes us acceptable to him, forgives us so that we stand before him now, not miserable in our sin, but holy in his sight. So we have fellowship with God. The spotlight is on the cross where that happened. What would the cross be worth... If indeed we were sinless, if we didn't need a Savior, it would be nothing. But being in desperate need, the cross is priceless. God came to earth that we might go to God. Let's circle back. To where we began then. What does the Lord God think of modernism a hundred years ago or whatever label it bears today? What does God think of moralistic therapeutic deism? And what should we? Simply put, it's the anti-Gospel. It denies our nature and actions, and it denies the nature and actions of God. Regarding the moralistic part, the part that says you can take the Ten Commandments and boil them all down to be nice or be good. Veith, in his World article, writes this. The common assumption is that being good is easy. Just a matter of knowing what one should do and trying harder. The biblical truth that bad behavior is a manifestation of sin, a depravity that inheres in our fallen nature is skimmed over. And so is the solution to sin, a life-changing faith in Jesus Christ. Regarding the therapeutic part, how much of religion today, including What passes for Christianity is mostly this. It's pop psychology. It's self-help cliches. By the way, isn't it so often the case that self got you into the problem and you're turning to self to get you out? Come on. It's the man-centered power of positive thinking. And it denies God. Regarding the deistic element, again, how much of religion today, including what passes for Christianity, talks about God in a generic way. When you hear someone say, I believe in God, tell me more about that. Who is that? What do you believe about God? And normally, they can't go another word. I believe in God seems to be enough, but it is not. That says nothing about God the Father, who with the Spirit and the Son created and sustains the world. God the Son who became man to gain our salvation God, the Holy Spirit, who works through the word of God to bring us to faith. I close the way Veith closed his article. Christianity is about grace, not moralism. Changing lives, not making people feel better about themselves. The God-made flesh, not an uninvolved Deity. And that is better news than moralistic, theistic deism. And we say amen to that. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, we marvel at such grace that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We praise you that your perfect law is not simply be good, but that you flesh it out in the Word and made it flesh in the Savior who has fulfilled all righteousness for us. And we praise you, O oh God, that you are present in this holy room in our lives not off on vacation somewhere watching the world go by, but intimately, daily, involved in the lives of your people, in the welfare of your church, in the mission of your Holy Spirit, and in the affairs of nations. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bring to you this day and until we see you face to face, heartfelt praise and everlasting thanksgiving. And we pray in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.